So uh, it's going to get dive into some suttas, a couple of suttas this morning, and then read more Lungpur Cha and just explore some of the interplay between reading the suttas and then reading the teachings of Lumpur Cha and uh, finding that that might be a useful way to reflect on the teachings, contemplate the teachings, and uh, actually just um, starting with the, uh, since we're going to be exploring the Four Noble Truths, then wanted to get uh, get right into Dukkha, so uh thought I would start by reading the Mahadukkha Kanda Sutta, the greater discourse on the mass of suffering. I'll read the Mahadukkha Kanda Sutta first, and then uh, see where that takes us to. And then I may or may not read the Chula Dukkha Kanda Sutta, the shorter discourse on the mass of suffering. Um, let's see how much time this takes. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living at Savati in Jetta's Grove and Atapindaka's Park. So the Mahadukkha Kanda Sutta is Sutta number 13 of the Majjhima Nikaya. Then when it was morning, a number of bhikkhus dressed and taking their bowls and outer robes went into Savati for alms. Then they thought, it is still too early to wander for alms in Savati. Suppose we went to the park of the wanderers of other sects. So they went to the park of the wanderers of other sects, and they exchanged greetings with the wanderers. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, they sat down at one side. The wanderers said to them, Friends, the recluse Gotama describes the full understanding of sensual pleasures, and we do so too. The recluse Gotama describes the full understanding of material form, and we do so too. The recluse Gotama describes the full understanding of feelings, and we do so too. What then is the distinction here, friends? What is the variance? What is the difference between the recluse Gotama's teaching of the Dhamma and ours, between his instructions and ours? So this is, uh, for me, I, I appreciate suttas like this because it's so much like now when we're wandering on alms round or even on Tudong and you meet uh, either you know Christians, Mormons, or other types of people and they'll ask you similar types of things. Don't all religions, just all paths leading to the same mountaintop, aren't they all teaching the same thing? So uh, suttas like this really address those types of questions. Then those bhikkhus neither approved nor disapproved of the wanderer's words. Without doing either, they rose from their seats and went away, thinking, we shall come to understand the meaning of these words in the Blessed One's presence. When they had wandered for alms in Savati and had returned from their alms round, after the meal, they went to the Blessed One. And after paying homage to him, they sat down at one side and told him what had taken place. The Blessed One said, Bhikkhus, wanderers of other sects who speak thus should be questioned thus. But friends, what is the gratification, what is the danger, and what is the escape in the case of sensual pleasures? What is the gratification, what is the danger, and what is the escape in the case of material form? What is the gratification, what is the danger, and what is the escape in the case of feelings? And that's a... Those are words that are going to come up over and over again in the teaching, the gratification, the asada, the drawback or the danger, the adinava, and then the escape, the nisarana. 
Being questioned thus, wanderers of other sects will fail to account for the matter, and what is more, they will get into difficulties. Why is that? Because it is not their province. Because I see no one in the world with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas, in this generation with its recluses and brahmins, with its princes and its people, who could satisfy the mind with a reply to these questions, except for the Tathagata or his disciple, or one who has learned it from them. And what bhikkhus is the gratification in the case of sensual pleasures? Bhikkhus, there are these five cords of sensual pleasure. What are the five? Forms cognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. Sounds cognizable by the ear, odors cognizable by the nose, flavors cognizable by the tongue, tangibles cognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. These are the five chords of sensual pleasure. Now the pleasure and joy that arise dependent on these five chords of sensual pleasure are the gratification in the case of sensual pleasures. And what, bhikkhus, is the danger in the case of sensual pleasures? Here, bhikkhus, on account of the craft by which a clansman makes a living, whether checking or accounting or calculating or farming or trading or husbandry or archery or the royal service or whatever craft it may be, he has to face cold. He has to face heat. He is injured by contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, and creeping things. He risks death by hunger and thirst. Now this is a danger in the case of sensual pleasures. A mass of suffering visible here and now, having sensual pleasures as its cause, sensual pleasures as its source, sensual pleasures as its basis, the cause being simply sensual pleasures. If no property comes to the clansman while he works and strives and makes an effort thus, he sorrows, grieves, and laments, weeps, beating his breast and becomes distraught, crying, my work is in vain, my effort is fruitless. Now this too is a danger in the case of sensual pleasures, a mass of suffering visible here and now, the cause being simply sensual pleasures. If property comes to the clansman while he works and strives and makes an effort thus, he experiences pain and grief in protecting it. How shall neither kings nor thieves make off with my property, nor fire burn it, nor water sweep it away, nor hateful hares make off with it? And as he guards and protects his property, kings or thieves make off with it, or fire burns it, or water sweeps it away, or, or hateful heirs make off with it. And he sorrows, grieves, and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught, crying, What I had I have no longer. Now this too is a danger in the case of sensual pleasures, a mass of suffering visible here and now, the cause being simply sensual pleasures. Again, with sensual pleasures as the cause, sensual pleasures as the source, sensual pleasures as the basis, the cause being simply sensual pleasures, kings quarrel with kings, nobles with nobles, brahmins with brahmins, householders with householders, mother quarrels with son, son with mother, father with son, son with father, brother quarrels with brother, brother with sister, sister with brother, friend with friend. And here in their quarrels, brawls, and disputes, they attack each other with fists, clods, sticks, or knives, whereby they incur death or deadly suffering. 
Now this too is a danger in the case of sensual pleasures, a mass of suffering here and now, the cause being simply sensual pleasures. Again, with sensual pleasures as the cause, men take swords and shields and buckle on bows and quivers, and they charge into battle, massed in double array, with arrows and spears flying and swords flashing. And there they are wounded by arrows and spears, and their heads are cut off by swords, whereby they incur death or deadly suffering. Now this too is a danger, in the case of sensual pleasures, a mass of suffering here and now, the cause being simply sensual pleasures. Again, with sensual pleasures as the cause, men take swords and shields and buckle on bows and quivers, and they charge slippery bastions with arrows and spears flying with swords flashing, and there they are wounded by arrows and spears and splashed with boiling liquids and crushed under heavy weights, and their heads are cut off by swords, whereby they incur death or deadly suffering. Now this too is a danger in the case of sensual pleasures, a mass of suffering here and now, the cause being simply sensual pleasures. Again, with sensual pleasures as the cause, men break into houses, plunder wealth, commit burgl burglary, ambush highways, seduce others' wives, and when they are caught, kings have many kinds of torture inflicted on them. The kings have them flogged with whips, beaten with canes, beaten with clubs. They have their hands cut off, their feet cut off, their hands and feet cut off, their ears cut off, their noses cut off, their ears and noses cut off. They have them subjected to the porridge pot, to the, quote, polished shell shave, unquote, to Rahu's mouth, to the fiery wreath, to the flaming hand, to the blades of grass, to the bark dress, to the, quote, antelope, to the meat hooks, to the coins, to the lye pickling, to the pivoting pin, to the rolled up pallier, and they have them splashed with boiling oil, and they have them thrown to be devoured by dogs, and they have them impaled alive on stakes, and they have their heads cut off with swords, whereby they incur death or deadly suffering. Now this too is a danger in the case of sensual pleasures, a mass of suffering here and now, the cause being simply sensual pleasures. This like, had like a few lines as to the gratification, and now this is all the drawback. It's really intense. Again, with sensual pleasures as the cause, sensual pleasures as the source, sensual pleasures as the basis, the cause being simply sensual pleasures, people indulge in misconduct of body, speech, and mind. Having done so, on the dissolution of the body, after death, they reappear in states of deprivation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. Now this is a danger in the case of sensual pleasures, a mass of suffering in the life to come having sensual pleasures as its cause, sensual pleasures as its source, sensual pleasures as its basis, the cause being simply sensual pleasures. And what, bhikkhus, is the escape in the case of sensual pleasures? It is the removal of desire and lust, the abandonment of desire and lust for sensual pleasures. This is the escape in the case of sensual pleasures. That those recluses and Brahmins who do not understand as it actually is, the gratification is gratification, the danger as danger, and the escape as escape in the case of sensual pleasures, can either themselves fully understand sensual pleasures or instruct another that, so that he can fully understand sensual pleasures, that is impossible. That those recluses and Brahmins who understand as it actually is, the gratification is gratification, the danger is danger and the escape is escape in the case of sensual pleasures 
can either themselves fully understand sensual pleasures or instruct another so that he can fully understand sensual pleasures. That is possible. And the next part is material form. And what bhikkhus is the gratification in the case of material form? Suppose there were a girl of the noble class or the Brahmin class or of householder stock in her 15th or 16th year, neither too tall nor too short, neither too thin nor too fat, neither too dark nor too fair, is her beauty and loveliness then at its height? Yes, venerable sir. Now the pleasure and joy that arises in dependence on that beauty and loveliness are the gratification in the case of material form. And what bhikkhus is the danger in the case of material form? Later on, one might see that same woman here at 80, 90, or 100 years, aged, as crooked as a roof bracket, doubled up, supported by a walking stick, tottering, frail, her youth gone, her teeth broken, gray-haired, scanty-haired, bald, wrinkled, with limbs all blotchy. What do you think, bhikkhus? Has her former beauty and loveliness vanished and the danger become evident? Yes, venerable sir. Bhikkhus, this is the danger in the case of material form. Again, one might see that same woman afflicted, suffering, and gravely ill, lying fouled in her own urine and excrement, lifted up by some and set down by others. What do you think, bhikkhus? Has her former beauty and loveliness vanished and the danger become evident? Yes, venerable sir. Bhikkhus, this too is a danger in the case of material form. Again, one might see that same woman as a corpse, thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter, what do you think, bhikkhus? Has her former beauty and loveliness vanished and the danger become evident? Yes, venerable sir. Bhikkhus, this too is a danger in the case of material form. Again, one might see that same woman as a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, or various kinds of worms. So this is all, uh, these are now these stock phrases from the Satipatthana Sutta Kayagata Sati the contemplation of the body, a skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood held together with sinews, a skeleton without flesh and blood held together with sinews, disconnected bones scattered in all directions, here a hand bone, there a foot bone, here a thigh bone, there a rib bone, here a hip bone, there a backbone, here the skull, bones bleached white, the color of shells, Bones, heap, bones heaped up, bones more than a year old, rotted and crumbled to dust. What do you think, bhikkhus? Has her former beauty and loveliness vanished and the danger become evident? Yes, venerable sir. Bhikkhus, this too is a danger in the case of material form. And what bhikkhus is the escape in the case of material form? It is the removal of desire and lust, the abandonment of desire and lust for material form. This is the escape in the case of material form. That those recluses and Brahmins who do not understand as it actually is, the gratification is gratification, the danger as danger, and the escape as escape in the case of material form, can either themselves fully understand material form or instruct another so that he can fully understand material form. That is impossible. That those recluses and Brahmins who understand as it actually is, the gratification is gratification, the danger as danger, and the escape as escape in the case of material form, can either themselves fully understand material form or instruct another so that he can fully understand material form, that is possible. And then a short ending talking about feeling. 
feelings, and what bhikkhus is the gratification in the case of feelings. Here bhikkhus, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the first jhana, which is accompanied and by applied and sustained thought with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. On such an occasion, he does not choose for his own affliction or for another's affliction or for the affliction of both. On that occasion, he feels only feeling that is free from affliction. The highest gratification in the case of feelings is freedom from affliction, I say. Again, with the stilling of applied and sustained thought, a bhikkhu enters upon and abides in the second jhana. With the fading away as well of rapture, he enters upon and abides in the third jhana. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, he enters upon and abides in the fourth jhana. On such an occasion, he does not choose for his own affliction or for another's affliction or for the affliction of both. On that occasion, he feels only feeling that is free from affliction. The highest gratification in the case of feelings is freedom from affliction, I say. And what because is the danger in the case of feelings? Feelings are impermanent, suffering, and subject to change. This is the danger in the case of feelings. And what bhikkhus is the escape in the case of feelings? It is the removal of desire and lust, the abandonment of desire and lust for feelings. This is the escape in the case of feelings. So I, I uh, think that's quite, quite profound. He's talking about, the Buddha's talking about the four jhanas, but he's saying that's the gratification in the case of feeling, but then the danger is that it's impermanent, so that uh, those, those are not states that we can permanently abide in, that they, uh, they fade away so that, that even those have danger in them. That those recluses and Brahmins who do not understand as it actually is, the gratification is gratification, the danger as danger and the escape as escape in the case of feelings, can either themselves fully understand feelings or instruct another so that he can fully understand feelings, that is impossible. That those recluses and Brahmins who understand as it actually is, the gratification as gratification, the danger as danger, and the escape as escape in the case of feelings, can either themselves fully understand feelings or instruct another so that he can fully understand feelings, that is possible. That is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So it gets a little bit extreme talking about King's torture, the different types of king's tortures, naming them and everything, and uh, saying that that's the result of just the, uh, that's a danger in sensual pleasures. And before we go into some questions, I'll just read a few more talks from Still Forest Pool, just where I left off, and uh, slowly working through this book. Because I find uh, combining the suttas with teachings of the Kruba Ajans is very, very helpful for uh, getting that rather than the uh, repetitive sutta, uh, the way the suttas are composed in a very repetitive and can be a very engaging way, but then hearing just the more conversational tone of Lumpur Cha to combine with that, I found very, very helpful. Go beyond words, see for yourself. In my own practice, I did not know or study much. I took the straightforward teachings the Buddha gave and simply began to study my own mind according to nature. When you practice, observe yourself. Then gradually, knowledge and vision will arise of themselves. If you sit in meditation and want it to be this way or that, you'd better stop right there. 
Do not bring ideals or expectations to your practice. Take your studies, your opinions, and store them away. You must go beyond all words, all symbols, all plans for your practice. Then you can see for yourself the truth arising right here. If you do not turn inward, you will never know reality. I took the first few years of formal Dhamma text study, and when I had the opportunity, I went to hear various scholars and masters teach until such study became more of a hindrance than a help. I did not know how to listen to their sermons because I had not looked within. The great meditation masters spoke about the truth within oneself. Practicing, I began to realize that it existed in my own mind as well. After a long time, I realized that these teachers have really seen the truth and that if we follow their path, we will encounter everything they have spoken about. Then we will be able to say, yes, they were right. What else could there be? Just this. When I practiced diligently, realization unfolded like that. If you are interested in Dhamma, just give up, just let go. Merely thinking about practice is like pouncing on the shadow and missing the substance. You need not study much. If you follow the basics and practice accordingly, you will see the Dhamma for yourself. There must be more than merely hearing the words. Speak just with yourself, observe your own mind. If you cut off this verbal thinking mind, you will have a true standard for judging. Otherwise, your understanding will not penetrate deeply. Practice in this way, and the rest will follow. Next one's called Buddhist Psychology. One day, a famous woman lecturer on Buddhist metaphysics came to see Ajahn Chah. This woman gave periodic teachings in Bangkok on the Abhidhamma and complex Buddhist psychology. In talking to Ajahn Chah, she detailed how important it was for people to understand Buddhist psychology and how much her students benefited from their study with her. She asked him whether he agreed with the importance of such understanding. Yes, very important, he agreed. Delighted, she further questioned whether he had his own students learn Abhidhamma. Oh yes, of course. And where, she asked, did he recommend they start? Which books and studies were best? Only here, he said, pointing to his heart. Only here. Study and Experiencing Let us talk about the difference between studying Dhamma ideas and applying them in practice. True Dhamma study has only one purpose, to find a way out of the unsatisfactoriness of our lives and to achieve happiness and peace for ourselves and all beings. Our suffering has causes for its arising and a place to abide. Let us understand this process. When the heart is still, it is in its normal condition. When the mind moves, thought is constructed. Happiness and sorrow are part of this movement of mind, this thought construction. So also is restlessness, the desire to go here and there. If you do not understand such movement, you will chase after thought constructions and be at their mercy. Therefore, the Buddha taught us to contemplate the movements of the mind. Watching the mind move, we can see its basic characteristics, endless flux, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness. You should be aware of this and contemplate these mental phenomena. In this way, you can learn about the process of dependent origination. The Buddha taught that ignorance is the cause of the arising of all worldly phenomena and of our volitions. Volition gives rise to consciousness, and consciousness in turn gives rise to mind and body.
This is the process of dependent origination. When we first study Buddhism, these traditional teachings may appear to make sense to us. But when the process is actually occurring within us, those who have only read about it cannot follow fast enough. Like a fruit falling from a tree, each link in the chain falls so fast that such people cannot tell what branches it has passed. When pleasurable sense contact takes place, for example, they are carried away by the sensation and are unable to notice how it happened. Of course, the systematic outline of the process in the texts is accurate, but the experience is beyond textual study. Study does not tell you that this is the experience of ignorance arising. This is how volition feels. This is a particular kind of consciousness. This is the feeling of the different elements of body and mind. When you let go of a tree limb and fall to the ground, you do not go into detail about how many feet and inches you fell. You just hit the ground and experience the pain. No book can describe that. Formal Dhamma study is systematic and refined, but reality does not follow a single track. Therefore, we must attest to what arises from the one who knows, from our deepest wisdom. When our innate wisdom, the one who knows, experiences the truth of the heart and mind, it will be clear that the mind is not ourself. Not belonging to us, not, e, not I, not mine, all of it must be dropped. As to our learning the names of all the elements of mind and consciousness, the Buddha did not want us to become attached to the words. He wanted us to see that all this impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty of self. He taught only to let go. When these things arise, be aware of them, know them. Only a mind that can do this is properly trained. When the mind is stirred up, the various mental formations, thought constructions, and reactions start arising from it, building and proliferating continually. Just let them be, the good as well as the bad. The Buddha said simply, give them up. But for us, it is necessary to study our own minds to know how it is possible to give them up. If we look at the model of the elements of mind, we see that it follows a natural sequence. Mental factors are thus, consciousness arises and passes like this, and so forth. We can see in our own practice that when we have right understanding and awareness, then right thought, right speech, right action, and right livelihood automatically follow. Different mental elements arise from that very one who knows. The one who knows is like a lamp. If understanding is right, thought and all the other factors will be right as well, like the light emanating from the lamp. As we watch with awareness, right understanding grows. When we examine all that we call mind, we see only a conglomeration of mental elements, not a self. Then where can we stand? Feeling, memory, all the five aggregates of mind and body are shifting like leaves in the wind. We can discover this through meditation. Meditation is like a single log of wood. Insight and investigation are one end of the log. Calm and concentration are the other end. If you lift up the whole log, both sides come up at once. Which is concentration and which is insight? Just this mind. You cannot really separate con concentration, inner tranquility, and insight. They are just as a mango that is first green and sour, then yellow and sweet, but not two different fruits. One grows into the other. Without the first, we would never have the second. Such terms are only conventions for teaching. We should not be attached to the language. The only source of true knowledge is to see what is within ourself. 
Only this kind of study has an end and is the study, study of real value. The calmness of the mind at the beginning stage of concentration arises from the simple practice of one-pointedness. But when this calm departs, we suffer because we have become attached to it. The attainment of tranquility is not yet the end, according to the Buddha. Becoming and suffering still exist. Thus, the Buddha took this concentration, this tranquility, and contemplated further. He searched out the truth of the matter until he was no longer attached to tranquility. Tranquility is just another relative reality, one of the numerous mental formations, only a stage on the path. If you are attached to it, you will find yourself stuck in birth and becoming based on your pleasure in tranquility. When tranquility ceases, agitation will, become, will begin and you will be attached even more. The Buddha went on to examine becoming and birth to see where they arise. As he did not yet know the truth of the matter, he used his mind to contemplate further, to investigate all the mental elements that arose. Whether tranquil or not, he continued to penetrate, to examine further, until he finally realized that all he saw, all the five aggregates of body and mind, were like a red-hot iron ball. When it is red-hot all over, where can you find a cool spot to touch? The same is true of the five aggregates. To grasp any part causes pain. Therefore, you should not get attached even to tranquility or concentration. You should not say that peace or tranquility is you or yours. To do so just creates the painful illusion of self, the world of attachment and delusion, another red-hot iron ball. In our practice, our tendency is to grasp, to take experiences as me and mine. If you think, I am calm, I am agitated, I am good or bad, I am happy or unhappy, this clinging causes more becoming in birth. When happiness ends, suffering appears. When suffering ends, happiness appears. You will see yourself unceasingly vacillating between heaven and hell. The Buddha saw that the condition of his mind was thus, and he knew, because of this birth and becoming, his liberation was not yet complete. So he took up these elements of experience and contemplated their true nature. Because of grasping, birth and death exist. Becoming glad is birth, becoming dejected is death. Having died, we are then born. Having been born, we die. This birth and death from one moment to the next is like the endless spinning of a wheel. The Buddha saw that whatever the mind gives rise to is just, just transitory conditioned phenomenon, which are really empty. When this dawned on him, he let go, gave up, and found an end to suffering. You too must understand these matters according to the truth. When you know things as they are, you will see that these elements of mind are a deception, in keeping with the Buddha's teaching that this mind has nothing, does not arise, is not born, and does not die with anyone. It is free, shining, resplendent, with no nothing to occupy it. The mind becomes occupied only because it misunderstands and is deluded by these conditioned phenomena, this false sense of self. Therefore, the Buddha had us look at our minds. What exists in the beginning? Truly, not anything. This emptiness does not arise and die with phenomena. When it contacts something good, it does not become good. When it contacts something bad, it does not become bad. The pure mind knows these objects clearly, knows that they are not substantial. When the mind of the meditator abides like this, no doubt exists. Is there becoming? Is there birth? We need not ask anyone. 
Having examined the elements of mind, the Buddha let them go and became merely one who was aware of them. He just watched with equanimity. Conditions leading to birth did not exist for him. With his complete knowledge, he called them all impermanent, unsatisfactory, empty of self. Therefore, he became the one who knows with certainty. The one who knows sees according to this truth and does not become happy or sad according to changing conditions. This is true peace, free of birth, aging, sickness, and death, not dependent on causes, results, or conditions, beyond happiness and suffering, above good and evil. Nothing can be spoken about it. No conditions promote it any longer. Therefore, develop samadhi, calm, and insight. Learn to make them arise in your mind and really use them. Otherwise, you will know only the words of Buddhism, and with the best intentions, go around merely describing the characteristics of existence. You may be clever, but when things arise in your mind, will you follow them? When you come into contact with something you like, will you immediately become attached? Can you let go of it? When unpleasant experiences arise, does the one who knows hold that, that dislike in his mind, or does he let it go? If you see things you dislike and still hold on to or condemn them, you should reconsider. This is not yet correct, not yet the supreme. If you observe your mind in this way, you will truly know for yourself. I did not practice using textbook terms. I just looked at this one who knows. If it hates someone, question why. If it loves someone, question why. Probing all arising back to its origin, you can solve the problem of clinging and hating and get them to leave you alone. Everything comes back to and arises from the one who knows, but repeated practice is crucial. Okay, I'll leave the reading there for today. I've got about uh, 10 minutes for if anybody has any questions, comments. Yeah, nisarana, the the escape, the escape in terms of feeling. Yeah, that was. Uh, it's the same as the other ones, actually. It's the uh, removal of desire and lust, the abandonment of desire and lust for feelings. But I uh, these this is one of those teachings, the uh, Mahaduka Kanda Sutta, where I at first I kind of thought, oh, that's really negative. I just kind of all the people quarreling with each other and stuff, but then, oh, it's really true, actually. <laughs> it's over and over again. It's just so true. So, <laughs> mother with father, son with mother, son with brother, so brother with sister, friend with friend. <laughs> like, yep, I've seen all those. <laughs> check, check, check. <laughs> Any uh, comments on those teachings of Lumpur Cha or on the Sutta? Anything coming to mind? Just, yeah, Sadhguru. Well, it's about 2.10. We could continue with our practice.